I'm Michael Maloney, founder of Satellite Design for Recovery. I'm Robbie Boundy, founder of Space Impulse. I'm Alistair Funge, space policy and operations engineer. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. Today's guest is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Can't be a bad guy, right? and spent about 20 years working as an analyst for a major investment firm before branching out onto his own. And he's regarded by folks, including me, as the leading Wall Street analyst on the space and satellite sector. Here's a guy who really understands business and technology, very important combination, and often missing out there, usually it's one or the other. So Chris Quilty, welcome. All right, Chris. So you spent a very long time, 20 years, working as an analyst for a very well-known investment firm, and then you decided to open your own firm. So what changed there? What made you want to open up your own company? Um, ignorance? I, I don't know. Um, well, actually, uh, I have to say, you know, when I, I left that investment firm, Raymond James, uh, where I was a sell-side analyst for 20 years, um, I actually thought for the first time in my life, I'd, I'd go out and get a real job instead of just pontificating about stuff, uh, mm. stocks. And I had a number of offers within the space industry. I had been writing about space stuff for 10 or 15 years, and I had some offers, um, CFO and biz dev and corp dev and strategy work. And then I had actually somebody in the industry who said to me, you know, like, Chris, you're the only guy on Wall Street that's writing on the space industry. And, you know, the stuff you write is kind of interesting. Like, why don't you just go out and do this on your own? And I thought, well, yeah, that's a real stupid idea. Like, because who's ever going to pay me to do this? And um, I had several other, you know, customers and uh, on the investment side and companies in the industry that, you know, I kind of called around and said, hey, you know, if I did this, would you be interested? And lo and behold, you know, there was a, a enough of a critical mass that I walked out on the plank, took a jump and said, you know, I'm going to go create my own little uh, boutique here and, and do research. And uh, we've added on banking and some strategy work uh, that we do on the industry. And, you know, in retrospect, uh, 2016 was a year after SpaceX and OneWeb had announced uh, their Leo broadband constellations. And it was just on the leading edge of when you know, venture investing in space companies went from absolutely nothing to just skyrocketing. So, uh, you know, the rest is history. We, we, we've been uh, busier than a one-arm wallpaper hanger here for a couple of years. Uh, we, you know, the outlook for the industry is pretty exciting and uh, we in the heck out of what we do. Awesome. Well, yeah, you were recommended to me uh, by several people, you know, you used to talk to, uh, I think Michael Mealing might have been the, the most forefront uh, of the badge. So, you know, the space startup industry, here's my preamble for the next couple of questions here. It's filled with founders who have a technical idea, they want to make the thing, and they believe that that alone makes them a business owner. They go, now I got a business, I got an idea. 
but who's the customer? You ask them this and they don't know. So I personally find this the most frustrating thing about the space industry. But in your LinkedIn profile, you talk about benchmarking. What indicators do you look for that demonstrate, hey, this, this company is going to be a good investment? Yeah. And, and you bring up a fair point. I mean, this is a technical industry. It's populated with engineers and engineers like building stuff. Mm -hmm. um, even if there isn't a, a business model behind it. I mean, I, I have had people that have come to me in the past and said, hey, we developed this thing, this widget, what's the market for it? And I thought, oh my God, you know, who gave you money to right. build your widget? But uh, I digress. So yeah, when you, when you benchmark, um, well, well, first of all, let me make a distinction between public companies and uh, private companies. Um, I, you know, I did that for 20 years at Raymond James picking stocks. We don't do that anymore. Uh, we do research, uh, we do financial research on companies and certainly that's our background. Um, but, uh, you know, there's lots of folks out there that want to call buy sell ratings on, on stocks, go to it. Um, on the private side, you know, that, that, that question, which is maybe more of a, you know, a, a venture investor question, you know, I think it all starts with, you know, you mentioned it. Who's the customer and what's their need? You know, if you're not starting there, you're starting in the wrong place. Uh, if you can't identify somebody who is going to willingly buy whatever service or product you're going to create, then you've started down the wrong path. You know, beyond that, um, boy, there, there's a lot of things like what's the competitive environment? Mm -hmm. What's the technical challenges? Um, and end of the day, you know, you got to sit down with a piece of paper and run the numbers on this. You know, if you can achieve delivering that product or service, what's the return on your investment? What What's your expect risk, risk adjusted expected return on that investment? It's got to be a good business for you too, not only a product that makes sense for the customer. Okay. Chris, how often are you asked by a private company owner to come in and look at their their numbers as opposed to from the outside looking in because you know private companies are pretty notorious about not sharing information right uh, you're just guessing a lot so when we talk about benchmarking we're not probably able to see uh, cash on hand or something like that right um, yeah. you know are, are, are you mostly uh, looking at the industry on behalf of investors and and whole sectors or are you looking at individual companies yeah i'd say it's more the former than the latter i mean i i have some friends in the industry who you know are, are involved in startups and ask me to look at their financial model and leak proof it and poke mm -hmm. holes in it um we don't really do that uh as a, a service per se mm -hmm. um in most cases, what we're doing is work for investors, investors looking to, to put a lot of money to work and they they don't know the company well enough. They don't know the industry well enough and they need somebody that, again, can sort of leak proof the business model and the financial model uh, to go in and sort of rigorously look at whether the numbers make sense. It's not a, a large part of what we do, but we do it on occasion. And, and certainly when there's large transactions involved, we're going to go ahead and sharpen our pencils and, mm. and make sure we like the numbers. Right. Yes, because folks, inventors, those investors want their money back. Speaking yeah. of getting their money back, are, are space startups today that you're seeing offering the exit opportunities that investors want? Well, the short answer is yes. I mean, we've we had a... Uh, uh, 
dozen companies go public last year, space companies go public uh, in 2021. Um, and all of them were through SPAC transactions, no regular way IPOs. But uh, it's a good question to ask because when that investment ramp, uh, venture investment ramp in the industry started back in 2015, 2016, you know, if you understand the venture investing model, you know, most investors contribute into these funds for 10 years. So the model is you spend one to two years making your bets, you know, initial investments, years two, three, and four, you know, you're doing follow-on investments to scale the company. And then kind of beginning years five, seven, eight, you know, you're trying to get out of these investments and God help you if you're pushing nine, 10, <laughs> something went wrong. And um, so if you think of the initial investments happening around 2015 by 2020, this is when guys need to start looking at exits or ramping up their investments. And so I had been uh, pontificating for a couple of years that, you know, hey, you know, we're not seeing large, you know, up round, you know, BC rounds coming into the industry. There's a lot of initial investments that have been made and there's been no exits. I mean, there weren't any acquisitions. Nobody was going public, no, no sale processes. And uh, that's a challenge, right? Because the investors need to get their money out. And so when COVID hit, uh, that was a, uh, oh my goodness moment because Nobody knew what was going to happen, and the funding could have dried up, and uh, you know, space investment as a theme could have died forever because people would have walked away with a a belief that this was just a roach motel. You put your money in, and the engineers build crap, and you know, you can never get out. And uh, I was wrong. I was 180 degrees wrong. <laughs> you know, the the market took off for space. The investment capital just poured in and the exits have happened. Um, you know, the, those SPAC transactions, and I think we'll probably talk about it later, you know, haven't had the best outcome here in the near term, but uh, bottom line for the investment community, you know, there, there was a positive outcome. Okay. In your opinion, Chris, how far are we from having a true commercial space industry? Oh, well, in the large arc of things, that's the direction the industry is going. Mm -hmm. Um, but the answer is highly dependent upon what sector of the industry we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you think of industries like satellite communications, there's a very large $25 billion a year uh, commercial satcom industry. And for most of the big operators, Intelsat, SES, Utilsat, you know, government is maybe 20% of their revenue. In other sectors, like the Earth observation market, mostly optical satellites, it's about a 20 plus year old industry, but still I'd argue about 80% of the revenues are still government. Um, the launch industry, the satellite manufacturing industry, I mean, you look across and there's a heavy, heavy dependence on government as the primary customer. And arguably this industry, relative to past industries has taken a lot longer than uh, than most to make that transition. But, you know, look, it, it, it's heading in that direction over the long term. You know, you can go back and look at, you know, for example, the semiconductor industry. 40 years ago, uh, two out of every three dollars that were invested in semiconductor research were coming from the government. Hmm. Today, the commercial sector outspends on R&D investment by 23 to one. And, you know, if this industry is going to be successful, we need to see a ratio flip. 
and mm -hmm. it's not going to happen over time you know that's those numbers were 40 years in semiconductor um hopefully it's not 40 or 80 years but uh, depending upon what happens here in the next 10 we'll kind of set the course for how quickly we see that transition okay yeah and, uh since I got into this industry, I've been really big on people, regular people need to be buying and selling things, you know, made in space, yeah. right? Uh, not just government and not just big companies either. Um, I think just regular members of the public. Well, let's hit hit the SPACs topic. <laughs> we, we saw a 50% devaluation of an offer a little while ago, uh, it was a pretty major incident. Uh, and it made me tear the rest of my hair out going, how is this initial valuation arrived at at all? Who did the work? And then why was it so different when, uh, when the reality came along, right? Uh, what's your opinion about SPACs and how gun shy do you believe investors will be going forward? Um, Funny you should mention guns. I'll, I'll use a, a well-worn example. You know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Um, SPACs don't kill investors. Bad SPACs kill investors. Mm -hmm. um, it is an investment vehicle, right? Just like options or, you know, buying equity or convertible debt. Um, it's the underlying asset and the valuation of that asset at the time of purchase that matters. Um, and then look, I'm not you know, uh, pulling blinders over my eyes, SPACs are a pretty unique investment vehicle. And uh, the rules around SPACs, certainly relative to a traditional IPO, are kind of shocking, right? I mean, it's almost like the industry figured out a way around the traditional SEC regulations dating back to the 1930s of, of putting out levels of information and guidance and whatnot that I mean, no one would ever think of, of attempting to do in a regular way IPO. Um, and, and just so, you know, for people who are not as well informed, um, it, it's important distinction, right? So technically what's happening here with the SPAC, the SPAC is a pool of money that was raised and it went public and it's a public pool of money. You know, if investors put 400 million in it and it went public, it's public as a stock with a $400 million valuation the what's called the de-spacking process which is the spac acquiring or merging with a real company is technically an acquisition it's not an ipo mm -hmm. the spac is already public so it's not yeah. so the ipo rules don't apply you know and what information does any company provide when they do an acquisition they don't have to tell you anything i mean unless it's material and then there are certain things they have to disclose so if you actually said hey this is an acquisition well actually they're putting a lot of a lot more information out than a normal acquisition would so um all that context is to say um there are elements of a spac that are very positive for owners of a company in terms of speed of transaction, the visibility you can provide to investors, and there's downsides to it. I mean, some of the mechanisms of a SPAC, the, the lockup periods, the pipe investment, the, the de-SPACing process, they create incremental risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, look, my hands are my hands are not lily white. We, <laughs> in my days at Raymond James, we can take credit for the fact of doing the very first ever space SPAC. Anybody want to guess what it was? Iridium. Uh, people forget, but it, it was at the time in 2009 after the market had cratered and they needed to raise capital and we came up with an inventive way, which was doing it through a SPAC transaction. 
Uh, and those SPAC 1.0 were very different than what we have today uh, in the current structure. But um, yeah, there are some risks around the SPACs and, and the trading periods and uh, the fact that investors will hedge these with uh, short sales that make the trading pretty dangerous. But look, here it is, bottom line, investors have you know a choice whether to invest at the valuation offered or not. If uh, enough investors rejected and said, hey, your forecasts are way too aggressive, we don't want it, the price would adjust. And we've seen that happen in some situations, you know, prior to the, the final despacking process. Uh, and if it was not done properly, we're seeing the after effect, which is some of these SPACs uh, getting knocked down by pretty large percentages. Okay. Chris, would you take a minute and describe the three paintings behind you? Ah. Uh, for those who are listening and not watching, I will link to a screenshot in yeah, the description. Yeah. And if I don't, please email me, jason at goldstartech.com, and tell me I forgot to do that. Yeah, so um, we moved into this new office back in April, and I had this big blank wall behind me. And I'm not a big fan of Zoom backgrounds, mm -hmm. and so I figured I'm going to create a uh, a not virtual Zoom background. So we have a, a great art student here in town and mm. in high school, and I hired her to go out. I gave her some concepts. And what she did for me back here is, uh, we'll call it the past, mm -hmm. the present, and the future. Very yeah. nice, very nice. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, I have hired two artists recently to do space stuff, and uh, <laughs> I hope their their finished product looks as good as those. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very nervous, process for me so <laughs> something that you've stated is that you believe the regulatory process or environment for space firms has become more favorable can you explain what's been happening and the factors contributing to this yeah so i'm not saying it's good right uh -huh. uh, but i'm saying what we've seen is more favorable moves in terms of regulation of the environment and uh you know i can't give you a single overarching example there are a number of small examples where we've seen uh for example in launch licenses uh i think the the faa has done a, an admirable job of trying to simplify uh the ability of companies to get things to market uh, you're also seeing it with regard to the earth observation market and some of the licensing uh, if folks remember back a while ago when when SpaceX did its inaugural uh, Falcon Heavy launch, they got into trouble because they didn't have a, uh, a license from NOAA, which provides those licenses, and they were taking a picture of, of Elon's uh, Roadster and it captured a picture of the Earth in the background, which is technically not supposed to do that. Um, and they've cleaned up some of those types of uh, regulations. Look, there's a lot of work to be done, both at the practical level of commercial entities trying to get approval for activities. Uh, Digital Globe, now MaxR, launched a satellite uh, with certain capabilities that, that they had uh, in terms of new bands. And literally, the satellite was on orbit for half its life before the regulators gave them the approval. Um, but we have seen some improvements. I mean, it used to be you couldn't image anything less than 50 centimeters, and they lowered that limit, right, to the, to the practically where the commercial industry is. So incrementally good. Um, 
some of the bigger picture stuff that we think about uh the you know moves towards the artemis accords and setting rules all good um space debris is obviously a big nut and and that's a regulatory issue uh but it's a global regulatory issue that doesn't have easy answers so um there's things yet to be done and uh, i'm at least confident or hopeful that the progress is heading in the right direction mm -hmm. okay well good stuff there I, now I want to check in with you about your impression of the defense and intelligence community and how they're reacting um, from your perspective to the slow emergence of a commercial space industry, right? Uh, and I know I've talked about this with um, with Dins over in England, Ralph Dinsley, about uh, what they that de-securitizing, right, and moving it out from behind the military firewall. Uh, in your opinion, are they resisting or embracing change over here in the U.S.? You know, I'm again, I'm optimistic. I see signs that, you know, very pretty clear signs that that the Defense Department realizes, um, you know, that that little example I gave about the semiconductor industry, where they cannot continue to drive the technology trends that if you unleash the control market and, you know, bend them to your your needs, that things will be done cheaper, they will be done faster. Uh, and, you know, with greater technical abilities than you can using traditional government contracting. What are some examples of that? Well, I mean, look at a, an organization like uh, DIU, the Defense mm -hmm. Innovation Unit, which was set up by Ash Carter, uh, the Defense Secretary at the time under Obama. And that was an organization established out in Silicon Valley, you know, enemy territory, I don't know um with a half civilian half uh you know military staff that you know their entire emphasis is on embracing and uh pulling in the tech community to help the defense department solve these big problems um certainly we've seen it happen in some of the contracting um this is not technically defense and intel but nasa um you know what does nasa build anymore right mm -hmm. they 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 mm -hmm have contractors who are in most cases for commercial cargo for commercial crew you've got the clips program where they're just paying fixed price to take something to the moon i mean that's all very different than the sls program uh, which is hopefully the last of the dinosaur programs where it's a nasa designed actually i should say u.s senate designed rocket um that is being contracted and run by nasa it's, and it's you know it's a classic right it's hugely over budget it's unsupportable financially and it's years and years behind where it was supposed to be and you contrast that with the commercial programs uh, under commercial cargo and commercial crew and by all measures they've been you know tremendous successes let me give you a quick example on the the dod side mm -hmm. Um, look at what's happening with the Space Development Agency, the SDA, and the proliferated LEO. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, not only SpaceX and Amazon and OneWeb are building mega constellations, the DOD is building its own 12,000, 1,200, they don't really tell us, uh, satellite constellation. And it's a seven layer with communications and tracking and hyperspectral and you know, there's going to be all sorts of capabilities built into it, um, including a hypersonic layer tracking, which is important. Um, 
but how are they contracting? And what they're doing is it's not a traditional program whereby every single time they order satellites, they're ordering from at least two vendors, could be more as they get up to the large orders. And all of the satellites are required to be compatible uh, and interoperable amongst each other. Um, part of it is going to be the, the communications layer of this of the satellites, the transport layer, uh, which is all going to be enabled by optical terminals. And every single supplier of those optical terminals, at this point, SA Photonics, Minarac, and Airbus TSAT, um, they have to work uh, and be interoperable because different companies are building satellites and putting different terminals on them. Um, that's a pretty encouraging and a very different model than you've seen in traditional satellite contract contracting, uh, where these were billion, multi-billion dollar, 10, mm -hmm. 20 year programs. Um, they're buying these satellites, these small satellites in tranches. Every two years, they're spiraling up a new capability. So uh, pretty cool and pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Anybody who knows me knows I like modularity and interchangeable parts. So the idea of multiple manufacturers putting out a very similar product, right, uh, is, is good. That is good for industry. Uh, provided that they actually work and can do it what works. they're supposed to. But uh, assuming that, everything is good. All right. Well, I, I end up talking to investors from outside the space industry every so often. Every few weeks, uh, somebody will pull me into a call. Jason knows about these guys. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and uh, I am frequently shocked by how little out-of-sector investors know about the space industry. They often know a name or two, you know, have you heard of this momentous company, right? Uh, and that's about it. Um, then they're actually considering making an investment, right? That's, uh, I have to caution them down. Um, but what are you seeing? Are you seeing out-of-sector venture capital more willing to fund space startups? Yeah. Um... So back to let's talk about as an investment class venture capital first, uh, although we have seen a surge uh, resurgence of private equity investing, which is a different class of investors, and of course the public market investors coming in. Um, you know, on the venture side, you know, I think prior to 2015, if I remember the numbers right, it was on average about eight startups a year and $140 million globally in the space sector. In the last four or five years, it's been more like a billion and a half a year and dozens of companies getting funded. And I think the breakpoint, Bryce did, Bryce does a good series, Bryce Space and Technology, um, looking at the space startup market. And if I remember, it was maybe 2016 or 2017, there were more first-time investors that year than had cumulatively invested in the industry in 10 years. What that means is, you know, five, seven years ago, I knew every single VC that had invested in the space industry, mm -hmm. like knew them personally. Yeah. Nowadays, there's people, I've, I, there's funds coming in I, I've never heard of that I didn't know they were into space and no, they never called me beforehand. Um, and, and look, um, I, I would say the part of it comes down to the venture investing model. Um, again, for those of you that don't live in the world of finance, um, venture funds, uh, they target a certain internal rate of return that they're, they're shooting for. And their model is to spread their bets. 
And if they make 10 investments, they fully expect, and statistically, these are the numbers when you run them, like six or seven out of the 10 will be a zero. They'll fail. It's fine. They're okay with that. Um, one or two will kind of return their investment and get it back. You'll get one in there that'll be, you know, pretty good, you know, 50% upside or something. But what you're really looking for is that diamond in the rough, that one, oh, we were in Google early, we were in Facebook. And it's that one investment in the portfolio that makes the fund, period. So it's not to say they're wrong in their, uh, their approach, uh, because I, I would agree with you. I'm sometimes surprised by the level of knowledge of people that put seven, eight figure sums of money into an investment that I would have said, no way, are you kidding me? Um, and you see different behavior amongst different classes of investors, private equity, you know, that's not their model. And they tend to do a heck of a lot more diligence because when they buy something, they own it. You know, and it's funny, public, I, I spent my life working with public investors. And the thing is, you know, I could work with a portfolio manager for three or six months talking through an idea and he's kind of building it up with his investment committee and he puts it in his portfolio. Something goes wrong, something goes right, or geez, just the portfolio manager changed and boom, they blow it out overnight. And they're done with it. I mean, it's public, right? You can trade it. And, and so you don't have to own and live with something as long when it's public. Uh, whereas if you're making private market investments, to get a good exit, you have to engineer the exit. So um, yeah, there's a, a lot of need for uh, education. And uh, you know, knock on wood, that's what we do at Quilty Analytics. We write research on the industry. And so uh, if you haven't looked this up, quiltanalytics.com and uh, see what we do. Right. Now I was going to finish up here, Chris, with uh, who would you like to hear from? Who should be reaching out and talking to you? And what kind of things would you like to do for them? Well, well what I would say is um, we get a lot of inbound interest and especially after events like, like this for regulatory reasons, because we are, um, we do work in the financial services industry on, on investment banking transactions and other things. We're sort of limited to uh, an institutional uh, accredited or corporate uh, type clients. I have tons of, you know, kids at, at universities and whatnot that want to reach out and talk about stuff. And, you know, sometimes we've got time for that. A lot of times we don't, but, you know, we have to be very careful because the uh, the information we, we use is sometimes it falls under different regulatory schemes. So as much as I, I love the fandom of having individual investors signing up uh, in most cases we we just can't so but we put out free stuff and and mm -hmm. uh there's some stuff on the website and certainly great pod great uh webcasts like this where you can jump on and hear from us mm -hmm. yes and get a little more depth which is what i'm always aiming for well chris thanks a lot for doing this i'll link to uh, quilty analytics below thank you appreciate it so a great look at the state of space commercial space industry right now with Chris Quilty there. If you are a founder or a senior executive at a space or defense company and you're realizing, holy cow, we're getting to the point where we're growing and you're realizing, look, we're missing. We don't have the systems and processes in place to handle things. There was a sort of a tribal knowledge that would get passed around by people talking to one another. And you realize you're exceeding that now and things are breaking and things are falling in the cracks. This is a very important time to talk to us at Cold Star Technologies. This is what we do. We help space and defense contractors 
get those systems and processes in place. Think about the electrician or the plumber inside your house, right? Uh, very, very important systems. If those things aren't in place, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a bad time. So if you want to get on with concentrating on things like, oh, I don't know, strategy uh, or execution, right, R&D, then you need these systems and processes in place. Go to coldstartech.com and book a time to speak with me. Thanks for listening.